The scripture reading for today's message from Dr. Hunter is taken from the first chapter of John, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, here's Dr. Hunter. We're going to start off with the second chapter of Genesis, and while you're turning there, I do have a couple of announcements. First of all, an announcement from the elders on November the 8th, we're going to have a special building offering so that we can get over the hump on this youth building and get this thing going. You know, we piddled around with this long enough. And so um, the, the, the spiritual thing we always do is say, pray about November the 8th. I'm telling you, save your money. Bring it in here. Put it down. We're going to build the building here. We need to get it done. Second thing, like saving money isn't a spiritual thing. I can, I can never figure that out. Like giving really, oh, well, I'm sure. Anyhow, the second thing is, tonight, I want you to come back at 6 o'clock. Let me tell you why. Terry Taylor is going to be here. Terry Taylor is a U.S. Director of the Navigators. Um, if he wasn't such a good friend of ours, it would be a real honor to have him here. <laughs> but he's a friend, so the honor's all gone. Um, for, he uh, is a part of a co-mission that involves 40 some missionary organizations, including Campus Crusade for Christ and Oriental Mission Society, you'd know the names. What is exciting is the vision that they have had together to send, without a doubt, the largest missionary effort over to what is the Union of Independent States now, Soviet Republic, to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. They are so hungry, and there are hundreds of thousands of conversions to Jesus Christ being made over there and the government is inviting America to send Christians over. This is so different than our country. Send Christians over into the school system to teach their kids about Christianity. We want to send 12,000 missionaries over the next five years in groups of 10 each uh, for a year at a time and keep replacing those teams of ten for a year at a time. Now, here's why I want you to come. First of all, I want you to hear the vision. Second of all, Northland wants to be a sending church for however many missionaries God raises up. And you may be surprised that God may be tabbing you to go. So I want you to come, and whether or not he's tabbing you physically to go or just to be in on the vision and the prayer and the financial support and so on and so forth, come tonight and hear about it, okay? Six o'clock. Uh, it's exciting stuff. Frankly, I don't know with the present course of our country how much longer we will be a missionary sending country instead of a missionary receiving country. But we are still in the position of being a missionary sending country. So uh, let's do it. All right? All right. Now let's get to this message here. I haven't done it right yet, so let's try it again. If you will remember, we are talking, we are in a whole series of series about God's purpose in life. And we have said in the first of those series that God gave five avenues of purpose for our lives in the Garden of Eden. Life, limits, love, um, learning, and 
Labor. Ha, 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 I did it. Um, we're talking about learning today. And remember that in the first message, we declared that God had given in the Garden of Eden an avenue to see him and to be close to him through the learning process. Let me read to you the 18th, 19th, and 20th verses of the second chapter of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now this whole process of learning comes out of a desire God has for man to be more intimate, both with the partner he will give and with the world that he has already given him, because look at how he does this. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now, I want you to see one strand here. This is the first notation of what we call scientific investigation going on. This was not an arbitrary naming. This was not a saying, you know, okay, you look like a duck. Okay, you look like a gazelle. In the Bible, when something is named, it reveals that creature's nature. That takes observation and description which is the scientific process. So therefore, this exercise that Adam was doing was an exercise in seeing what the objective world was all about and describing that objective world as it was. In other words, it was an exercise in establishing the truth. Now, come back with me. Verse 20. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. There is another strand. It is the strand of desired intimacy. In other words, in all of this conglomeration of objective truth, people still have the need for a personal response. One of the things that was happening with Adam as he named those animals was that he was forming an attachment to them. The Bible, when it says calls, literally means, Hebrews literally means calling out to them, seeing what the response would be. In other words, he's forming a personal attachment with creation. But the Bible also says that he needed even more than that personal attachment. He needed to know that God had paid attention to him personally because it says there was not a helper found suitable for him. And helper in Hebrew means corresponding one or one who answers back. And so there was this need, even in learning, for a sense of intimacy, a sense that I have not been left alone just to do scientific investigation in the midst of a huge machine. Now, having said that, having established that, well, you've got to work with here. You work with me on this. Stick with me. When we exited Eden... There came an illusion that somehow God was not working through his creation anymore, but that God was somehow elevated above his creation, and there was a division between heavenly things and earthly things, between the sacred and the secular. And that division, remember we preached, became evident throughout the years, but it was even evident in the time of Jesus and in the preaching of Jesus in the church after Jesus, when it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, where they're having trouble with the heresy, and the heresy is the heresy of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism 
is essentially saying that God is pure spirit. It's platonic. God is pure spirit, and God is so spirit, he doesn't even touch the world anymore. He just sends emanations to make the world, because he's too pure to be involved in the world. And John is saying, no, the incarnation says just the opposite. He is saying, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, listen to this, has come in the flesh, is from God. In other words, he was saying, don't divide God from the world. The incarnation is about God being in the world, God having access to the world. And so it's important in your learning that you see God here. The line of the Emily Dickinson poem, all circumstances are the frame for his face, is exactly right. God still has access to the world. God is still intimately involved in the world. Now, let's go to our text in the first chapter of John. John writes with a term that still speaks to both of those strands of interest, both of which have now grown up as cultures over the history of the world. The strand of of interest for intimacy has grown up now fully in the Hebrew culture. The Hebrew culture had a dear place in their heart for the term Word of God. To them, Word was a powerful living force. To them, Word was not just a description, it had a life of its own. To them, God spoke, Debar, and the world came into existence. The Word of God had creative and creation power. To them, the Word of God had healing power. In um, um, uh, Psalm 107, verse 20, it says this, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distress. He sent His Word, and it healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So, here is a word, see, that links with the creation of God. And when John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God, it had an immediate place in the life of a Hebrew. A Hebrew person was a person who was very practically oriented. They weren't much for words. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, there's less than 10,000 words. As opposed to the Greek language, there's more than 200,000 words. The Hebrews did not have a well-developed philosophical system, nor a well-developed theological system of the afterlife, because their investment was in relationship here and now. still is. It's our mother religion. It's the religion from which we get the deep love of the practical aspects of Christianity. It's the religion from which we get the, the, the love for the signs, you know? The little miracles, little winks God gives you every day, you know? Um, I, I, was, I was preaching a, a, a sermon, or a, a funeral the other day, and I was just saying about this woman uh, that God had given her some signs to the, to the family right at the end, of really neat signs, you know? During the time I was here in the church, during the time I was saying that, evidently there were several people came up to me afterwards and said, did you see what happened when you were talking about those signs? I said, no, what happened? They said, a dove flew up 
and hovered outside this window for about five seconds and then just flew away. See? Just, God just saying, see ya. You know? Gotcha. There was a, there was a, somebody out in the parking lot who was just so angry last night and just, he'd been rebuked, but, but maturely and lovingly so, you know, it was the right thing to do, but he just saying, man, I'm taking a, I'm leaving this place unless God gives me some sort of sign. And the person who was talking to him, and he turned around, and there was a double rainbow over the church. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) There's a part of us, see, that sees God through his creation, and we absolutely love that. And that's the strand that we have that God has built into us, the need for intimacy. And those signs and the gratification that comes through, through the creation. And then there's the other strand, the Greek strand. The, the term word is logos in Greek, and it means the underlying unifying reason that made the world. See, the Greeks didn't need all this relationship stuff. They wanted to know how the whole thing was put together. They wanted to know what was, what was, what was uh, long-term in the whole thing, what made sense in the whole thing. So they had this term logos. Heraclitus said, said, you can't step in the same river twice. Because once you f- put your foot out and, and put it back in, that piece of the river is slowed on and you, you put yourself into a different river. But, of course, it is the same river. And so people said, why is it that with so much change, the world remains the same? Why is it that your bodies have completely changed physically in the last ten years? Every cell you had died... Ten, you know, over the ten, last ten years has died and, and you're a whole new body right now. Why is it you've got the same personality, same memories? Why is it you're the same person? With all of that change, why have you remained the same? The logos, the reason, the unifying principle, you see. That's what interested the Greeks. And so when John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Greeks were right there. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what John was saying, for people who were looking for intimacy and people who were looking for scientific, objective truth, God was saying the same thing. How do I know there's intimacy? How do I know there's objective truth? God was saying, you've got to take my Word for it. You've got to take my Word in creation. You've got to take my Word in reason. And you've got to take my word as summed up in the life of Jesus Christ. That's where it all fits together. If you're going to learn about this world and how it operates, you can't learn just objectively or just subjectively. It fits together in Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you how that affects us today, or at least some of how it does. First of all, in our race for intimacy, we are prone to substitute poor and... Um, destructive things instead of a long-term intimacy with God. One of the things that we see as most real in this world, if I could be so blunt, when we look for intimacy, is the substitution of sex. And we are a, literally a, a culture crazy about sex and seeing that that's how we're going to get our needs for intimacy met. And what happens in a world that divides God from creation and figures out, well, I'll pay attention to him later 
He's off somewhere, and I'm free to run around down here and try to get my own needs answers. What happens is, number one, not only do you not realize God's right there with you, but you also start to try to elevate the act of sex into intimacy. And it's not that at all. You you start to try to class it up, to fix it up. One of the things that really amuses me is all these girly joints now have have put on a whole new look. They've got Roman statues out in the front. I I drove past this abomination on 1792. That color gives a whole new meaning to the word tacky, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh, yuck. There's a guy standing out front in a tuxedo. And I'm going, oh, come on. But you see what we do? We try to try to fix it up. We try to make it look like it's of a higher order than just your old regular sleeves joint. When it's just your old regular sleeves joint. See? A pursuit of intimacy like that can only lead to further thirst and to further emptiness and to further entrapment. The very things that God says, come to me over the years, I'll teach you what love is. I'll teach you what fulfillment is. The very things that Mary Magdalene learned, that you think that the only chance at nearness you'll ever get is a a sexual involvement, she thought that until she met Jesus. The, the, the thing that the, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery learned, when she thought she had the, the world pretty well sized up, men either use you for their pleasure or punish you because you've let them do that. She thought she knew how the world worked until she met Jesus, who didn't do either, but who gave her the respect and the intimacy she'd never had before. That is how God tries to teach us how to love. That's the truth in love. I, I had a memory of a, my grandmother uh, talking about my grandfather one time. And, I, you know, it's been so long ago I can't vouch for the, the coherence of the memory, but I can vouch for the facts. I know the facts are true. Uh, but whether this was one conversation or more than one, I don't know. But I do remember she was sitting out on a lake. They were fishing up in the Upper Peninsula, my grandmother was a very proper person. Um, and and uh, uh, she was waiting for my grandfather to come home with fish. She was an old veterinarian, a beer-drinking, cigar-chewing old veterinarian, come home with a bunch of fish. And she, that day, was going to clean his fish for him, you know? When she really inside wanted to clean his clock, because she didn't like beer and she didn't like cigars and so on and so forth. Well, there was a lady there sitting with her named Elsie, and Elsie was trying to get Grand to go into town to buy dresses with her. And she said, come on, let's go in and buy a dress. And, and Grand said, no, I'm, I'm staying here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean his fish today. Elsie said, Leo, I, I can't figure this out. I know you don't like fish. I know, I know. Now, let me describe, by the way, what this involves. I don't know how many of you have been in an old fish, fish cleaning house in the Upper Peninsula in primitive areas. But the best of them are simply a little round room with a board with a hole in it with a bucket underneath where you cut off the parts and you shove the parts down in the buckets. And the best of them have screens, but all of those screens have holes in them to which every fly in the universe can find its way in but can't find its way out. I've never been able to figure that out either. So they are horrible, irritating places that stink and are hot. 
Why do you want to do this? She said. Well, Gran, who had loved him a lot of years by then, said, I'll tell you why. She said, when I was 16 years old, I wasn't much to look at. But there was this 18-year-old boy that made me feel beautiful. I wasn't beautiful, but he made me feel beautiful. He'd open the doors and he'd carry my books. He'd ask me questions and he'd listen to the answer. He made me feel important. We got married and we were so different. It was such a tough marriage. And I got pregnant and it was a rough, rough pregnancy. I was so sick. And every day he'd come home so tired from work and every day he'd clean up the house and he'd clean me up and every day he'd sit down and he'd say, how was your day? Towards the end of that pregnancy, I lost that baby. And I was crushed. He cried. But not for him. For me. And I remember he held me. And he said, we'll have others. It'll be all right. She said, I remember one time in the Depression. I was sewing up the 16th hole in his best pair of pants. And shoving another piece of cardboard into his shoe because he had holes in the bottom about this big. And I remember he showed up on our front porch. It was Christmas time. And he was standing beside a brand new washing machine. He had saved for a year and a half. We hardly had enough food on the table, but he had saved for a year and a half to buy me that washing machine. She looked at Elsie and she said, I'd rather clean fish for that man in the dirtiest fish house in Michigan than I would have tea with the Queen of England. You know, love is long-term. Emily Dickinson said, I see thee better for the years that hunch themselves between us. When God loves, when God ministers, it's because he sacrificed for us. It's not about immediate gratification. It's about a world that still pays attention long term. And secondly, the world as we see it, objectively speaking, When we cut God off from it, it looks like a big machine. And it looks like we are helpless in the machine. And we give ourselves to that in this culture. You know why? To escape responsibility for our sin. Because if we can't help what we're doing, if we are all mechanically um, um, uh, predestined, and this is not the, the, the sense of predestination, but if we are all mechanically determined by the way we are wired, we don't have any responsibility then. And so we can say, well, it's just the way I am. We have a whole culture that is saying, well, you know, I don't have any responsibility for being a homosexual because that's just the way my genes are. I don't have any responsibility for being an alcoholic because, I, I, you know, that's just the way I'm wired. It's the way my chemi- chemistry is. I don't have responsibility for being violent. I've got, probably got, you know, two or three Y chromosomes in there. You know, maybe half a dozen. I don't have any responsibility in that. I, I was at a store the other day, and this... Lady's kid was just going absolutely bonkers nuts. And the lady was just standing there going. And I looked at her. 
She said, oh, it's not his fault. He's attention deficit. I thought to myself, lady, you're the one that's attention deficit. You're not paying half enough attention to that kid. You know what? Let me tell you something. Don't ever forget this. If something happens to be clinically accurate, it doesn't mean it's morally determinative. You understand what I'm saying? That diagnosis can be very helpful, but it is not fatalistic. You know why? Because we don't live in a closed system. God still has access. And when we make these huge excuses, why we are the way we are, and why we can't help and why we can't change, we are simply hurting ourselves and victimizing ourselves. I heard a parable one time. I love this parable. It's about this guy named George, and he was a sheriff's deputy, and, and the sheriff died, and George thought to himself, oh, this is great. Now I'll get to be sheriff, and I'll get all the respect I ever deserved. Sure enough, he got elected sheriff. So George was walking down the street, and they say, how you doing, George? Congratulations on the election. And he thought to himself, don't call me George. I'm the sheriff, by golly. you got to call me sheriff. So he thinks to himself, well, maybe if I, maybe if I send away for a new sheriff's uniform and get a uniform, they'll call me sheriff. So he sends away and gets this great-looking uniform, walks down the street. Everybody says, nice uniform, George. Oh, it makes him mad. Don't call me George. He says, well, he tries two or three, three other things. And so then he gets an idea. Now, remember, this is just a parable. He says, I'm going to get a badge made so big that everybody sees that badge and they'll call me sheriff. Sure enough, he gets this huge badge made. And it's a terrible thing to get around. Walks behind it. You can hardly see him, but he walks behind it. And finally, when he walks down the street, people call him sheriff. So it's worth it to him. Well, one day he's called out to assist on an armed robbery. He goes out there with this with his badge. And the guys turn back and shoot at him, and the bullets just bounce off of that badge. And he laughs at him. Then he pulls the gun and fires back. And it ricochets and kills him. Now listen to me. I'm going to sneak up on you here. These things we make to protect ourselves, to protect our pride, these things we, we make to protect ourselves from criticism will end up killing us. Because anything big enough to block out all the criticism is big enough to imprison us as victims. God has access to this world. He is not shunned away from any of it, either by our sin or by its geography. He is here. I wonder if the people who were in prison with Paul didn't think he was nuts when he was singing hymns at midnight. I wonder if they didn't think, hasn't he got the same cell we do? Isn't it locked like ours is? And the answer, of course, was, yeah. But there was one difference. They were imprisoned in theirs. And Paul had company in his. God had access to his life. And he could talk to him and he could sing to him and he was right there. And he knew not only did God have access, but he was going to use it for God's glory. It made all the difference in the world. 
God has access to his world. He is not divided. Let me tell you one story and then I'll quit. When I was a young preacher, just starting out, I was all enthusiastic. Still am, but uh, I'm a little bit more careful about the situations I walk into now, and I know a little bit more. I got a call when I had just arrived at this one church, and, and it said, You're the new preacher, aren't you? And I said, Yeah. I, I should have known as soon as they said that I was in trouble. Well, there's a lady out here. Happens to be my mother-in-law. She's the most cantankerous thing. The poor thing's dying of cancer. She's in pain every day. It's awful. And she's mad at everybody. And nobody can even go in that room. It's terrible. But I tell you what, you're the preacher. You ought to come out and see her. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So here I am. I get up. And I'm not having a good day anyhow. I sit on my glasses. And they're all bent up, you know. And the glasses are going like this. I'm driving down the street. You know, it's cold. It's rainy. It's all. So anyhow, get to this house. This house is a kind of a foreboding thing anyhow, and I'm kind of... Ch- you know, preachers are scared like anybody else. We don't like to be yelled at like no... You know, we haven't got, we haven't got anything extra. You've all got everything we've got. So you can imagine yourself walking into this thing knowing that you're going to be blasted. So here I am, fear and trepidation, get to the door. They open up the door, and, and she just didn't even say hi. She said, she's in there. <laughs> so I walk in this room. And here is this poor, pitiful thing all crumpled up on the bed. Her eyes are all swollen. It's dark. I walk in the room. She says, Who is that? Oh, man. I said, I'm the new preacher at your church. What are you doing here? I thought I'd come and talk to you a while. What do you want to talk about? I thought maybe we'd talk about what you want to talk about. I don't want to talk about anything. I hate this world. Well, when you when you go through all this counseling stuff, you you learn to say, "What do you hate about the world?" <laughs> Brilliant, right? You can tell she that's like 101 or so. Man, she just went off and I mean a rampage. All of that hurt and all of that loneliness and all of that pain. Man, it just came out. And she read me the riot act. You know? I wasn't about to tell her a thing, she said. Boy, I'm in pain. You don't know what it feels like to die. You don't know what it feels like to be in pain every day. You don't know what it feels like. And she went down. I'm in pain. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm, I've got bad memories. i got this. i got that. And then her last one was, and I'm all alone. Oops. When you pray for a window, there's always a window. There was the window. I said... Because I was too stupid to be gentle. You're not all alone. Well, nobody talked to her like that for a while. She said, You see anybody in here? I said, Let me tell you something. God's in here. He's never been out of here. This is His earth, His house, His room, His bed. He's here with you. Well, she said, which is typical preacher stuff. That's French for typical preacher stuff. <laughs> well, I said to myself, let's run this thing to the end here. So I started just talking as fast as I could about how our sin doesn't chase God away. Our hiding doesn't chase God away. In, in Romans 3.3 3 it says, our faithlessness does not make him unfaithful. 
And I just talked as fast as I could. And I got done. And there was a long pause. She said, I used to believe. I said, tell me about that. She said, I I guess I've never stopped believing in Jesus. I've just been mad at God. I've been mad at everybody. I've been mad at the whole situation. <laughs> I did that for the tape's sake. It's a theological term. It's all right. She said, but I still do think about Jesus. I still do believe. I just sat quiet for a minute. She said, what do you do when somebody wants to be baptized, but they can't make it to church? I said, do you want to be baptized? She said, yeah. So, now you Baptists, just, you don't need to complete this story with us. Just leave us here for a minute. <laughs> I shouted out into the other room. I know they're out there going like this. Shouted out, bring me some water, I said. Well, just a minute later, here comes this, I'll never get it. Here comes this woman with this Tupperware blue wax bowl of water sticking her head in the door going what's going on here said bring that over here so she brought it over and I started down the questions do you believe in God the Father maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ his only son our Lord and in the Holy Spirit the Lord the giver of life she said I do I said do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, do you take him for your savior, savior, and do you renounce the devil in all his ways? She said, "I do." And I baptized her right there. Long silence. She said, "We're not alone, are we?" Look, that day, that cancer ceased to be a prison and became a parlor. For all the angels in heaven. It ceased to be a fate. And it became an invitation to a feast. I don't care where you think you're trapped. You're not trapped. I don't know where you think God's excluded from your life. But he's right there. Would you today give up your prison? Would you today invite him into your parlor? And would you today follow him and let him love you in the truth? Pray with me. God, I don't know how we get fooled into thinking that you're excluded from any area of life. How we come to the conclusion that this is not your creation anymore. Or that somehow we've taken it over and it's ours to mess up. I don't know how we get fooled into thinking our lives are not yours anymore. And that somehow because of our sin and because of our anger we have ceased to be your creation or made in your image. I don't know how that happens. But I do know it's from the other side. I do know it's not true.
And I have your word on it. All of us do. So today we take your word, Jesus Christ. Today we stand on his love, his truth. Today we look at the universe as it is. And for all of us who are willing, we turn it back over to you. And we say, God, this is yours. I am yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.